Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, God, we thank you, Father, for who you are. Father, we thank you that as a triune God, the glorious and sovereign God, that we can come to you, Lord, today, this evening, as we begin a new week, Lord, we, uh, we just have this opportunity to gather together before you, Lord, and it's all because of the blood of Jesus, Lord. It's all because of the grace that you showed us by sending your Son to die on the cross, and I do pray that even as we sing about these things and ponder these things and have been thinking about your grace already today in the previous uh, service, Lord, I just pray that those things would be very much at the forefront of our thoughts and that it would be in that spirit and in that awareness of grace and of your goodness through the gospel to us, Lord, that we would um, be able to draw near to you now. And I pray that you'd hear our prayers as those that are made clean through Jesus Christ, through his blood, as prayers that are brought into the holy place by the Holy One. And though we could never stand in front of you in our own righteousness, we thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ's righteousness to stand with. And that's all the reason to be joyful and to have assurance, to have confidence that we are saved from death and hell and sin and that we can live with fullness of joy because we know the gospel, Lord, and we know that you've given us that hope. And Father, I pray that our worship would please you in that way and that it would be through that that we would come with our prayers and our songs and everything that we bring. Uh, Father, this week we pray for especially the many sick people in our church. Lord, we know there are so many who are ill and so many who are not able to be with us this evening. And I just pray that you would be with them, heal them quickly and yeah, I pray that this whole thing would not spread too much further amongst us and that it would, uh, that it would stop uh, having its impact. But I pray that you'd give everyone uh, a sense of your presence and a sense of joy, even in the midst of this difficulty, Lord. I pray also, Lord, uh, for this incoming weather. I know in some places in the world this wouldn't be so big of a deal, but... Here, Lord, with the infrastructure and what people are used to, I do pray that you'd spare people from their lives. It's going to be very cold. I pray that no one would perish from this cold that's coming in. I also pray that you would um, keep people's houses from damage and our streets and infrastructure from damage and also just, yeah, keep us safe driving on the roads and, and with enough food and supplies to make it through this time. And I just pray that it would all... Um, go over quicker than we would expect and have less impact than we would expect, Lord. God, I thank you that your kingdom is growing. I thank you that here at this church we get to serve you and praise you and worship you as your kingdom here. And also we thank you that in many places in the world the kingdom is growing, the gospel is being proclaimed, people are getting saved, hope and assurance and joy are being given to the lost and and the kingdom is growing, and those people in turn are planting churches, and the church is then growing there again and in every corner of this globe. And for that, we're incredibly grateful to be able to see the fruit of your life, Father, of Jesus' life, to be able to see the Spirit's work in the world. And I pray that we would continue to rejoice, even as times politically and socially seem to be difficult. I pray that we continue to rejoice as missions go on as the gospel continues to be proclaimed every day, 
And uh, Lord, I do thank you for those missionaries that we support. I thank you for all the missionaries in the world that are faithful to your word and to your gospel. I pray that we would be faithful in supporting more and more as we have the means to do so. And I pray also that we'd be faithful in praying for those who are in need of help and who are in need of spiritual support because it's hard being on the mission field. And we pray for the Oliveras as they're so close and dear to our hearts. I pray also for the Pritchards as they hopefully prepare to go to mission soon. And Lord, I pray for this mission that's ongoing. I just pray so urgently, and I know everyone prays along with me, Lord, that you would continue to bless the work of mission through our church and help us to be generous and filled with joy as we do support them and pray for them and see the fruit that they bring. And God, I thank you. Um, I just thank you for this time that we get to open up your word, that we get to consider a book of the Bible, maybe not in the traditional way that we typically do, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the purpose of this sermon. I hope and I pray that your light would shine on our eyes and our ears so that we can understand your word and have a better understanding of your gospel and and the meaning of this piece of scripture, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than what I typically do on a sermon. So as you know, I always start by usually reading a pretty big chunk of Scripture and then unpacking that the whole way along. Um, But uh, today's is going to be a little bit different because what I'm aiming to do is I want to show you the context and the circumstances that caused the big picture message of the book of 1 John. And so instead of taking the entire text of 1 John and trying to unpack that whole thing, instead I'm going to kind of try to guide us through, and I I trust that... uh, using a bit of a narrative approach or, or putting ourselves inside of that context will actually help us to be able to understand the book better, understand how it can apply to ourselves better going forward. And, and overall, it's going to help us see the unity and clarity of the rest of the series as we move along. So I hope that this sermon could serve as, well, I didn't announce this, but we're doing a sermon series on First John. <laughs> Okay, so that's what's going to be taking place in the evenings for the next little while. And so what I want us to just... Um, realizes that we can constantly be drawing back to this sermon as a kind of reminder, oh yeah, that's what, that's what the circumstances were, and that's what, the, that's what this book was written towards. And so I think it'll help us and guide us as this ancient message that was written so many years ago is still incredibly relevant to us today and in our modern world, and I'll apply that at the end. And so to help you better understand this book, I, wanna, um, I want you to imagine something with me as I walk you through the context and the purpose and the message of this letter as it would have been to those people that it was first written to. So I'm going to read the following piece to you all, and I want you to to follow along closely, and I want you to try to picture yourself there. I I want you to try to picture yourself as one of those people there in this church that this letter was written to. And so the first scene of the narrative is lostness. Okay, lostness, the state of lostness. So I want you to imagine that you are an ordinary person living in Asia Minor. That would be modern-day Turkey, but then it was called Asia Minor, during the time of the writing of the New Testament. I want you to imagine that before the apostles showed up and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and before the first churches had been planted in your hometown, that you were living an ordinary, everyday Asia Minor life. Okay, That might have been in the town of Ephesus. So, you know, the letter to the Ephesians? Maybe it would have been in Ephesus. Or maybe it would have been in Smyrna, or Philadelphia, or Colossae, or... Some place like that. 
So you imagine yourself living there, and I'll try to describe what life would be like there. So while you're living your life there before the gospel arrived, you and your family likely would have worshipped a number of different gods from the Greek and Roman tradition. So you, uh, maybe you spent most of your time worshipping Artemis. Artemis would be the mother, of, uh, the mother goddess of all living things. Or maybe you worshipped her twin brother Apollo. Apollo was more of a complex god with many different things that he was to do with. For instance, archery, music, dance, truth, prophecy, healing, diseases. He was this god of the sun, uh, poetry, things like that. So you probably worshipped some, maybe some of those main gods, but you also probably worshipped other gods in the Roman pantheon as well with frequent sacrifices and much personal devotion. This would have been you if you're an ordinary Asia Minor person before the gospel arrived in your town. And so from a spiritual perspective, it's safe to say that before the gospel came to your town, it was a very difficult and unfulfilling spiritual life. Okay, This is not because you might not have been well off financially or that you may not have had a relatively peaceful material existence. Because you might have. You might have been a very well-off person with an easy, sort of easy life. But because your gods uh, were so different from the God of the Bible, because your gods were so much not like Jesus Christ and, and the religion that we know, that's what made you miserable. That's what affected your life so much. Because your gods required so much of you in order for them to be happy. It's kind of a backwards picture. Our God gives so much to us for us to be happy and for him to be glorified. Whereas in their case, they were giving uh, this person, you, the, this person here in Asia Minor, you uh, in this scenario, were so uh, burdened because your God required so much of you in order to make them happy. And so it was a transactional relationship and a religion that was often filled with fear and uncertainty. You and your family were constantly trying to appease the gods without knowing exactly how they would respond and what they would do. You and your family were likely also involved in, this, in the kind of crippling superstition and sorcery of fortune-telling and things like that that often accompanied these kind of beliefs, constantly superstitious and afraid and concerned in your religion. So in this form of worship, you would live in frequent concern that your fishing business or your merchant business or your farming work, whatever it was that you did, you'd be constantly concerned that whatever it was that kept you busy, that in those scenarios that some, for some reason they might fail or for some reason they might suffer loss because of some shortcoming in your own character or in your own worship or uh, you know, maybe you did not sacrifice enough to them or maybe you did not pray enough to, their, to these false gods or maybe for no reason of your own these deities just didn't like you. So you would be constantly crippled with this kind of insecurity in your religion. And so in addition to these misfortunes, because you're made in the image of the true God, even before the gospel ever arrived in your town, you're still made in the image of the true God. So even before you ever had a relationship with him, you would frequently experience what it was like to have a conscience that was condemning you for many of the things which you were required to participate in as part of your religious worship. Your conscience would have been condemning you because... Um, you would be able, for instance, there was things like temple prostitution. There was things like all kinds of strange acts that were associated with worship to these gods. And so without question, though you may not have necessarily been able to explain exactly why this type of behavior plagued your conscience and added to your misery and your state of confusion, it definitely would have. And so this would be life in Asia Minor. So this is a basic story of your life 
and of the life of people that were like you for generations and generations in Asia Minor. Okay? That's the first scene, lostness. This life of religious uh, disconnectedness, I guess you could say, from God. But thankfully, during your lifetime, something changed. So something changed in that area. And this is the next scene, which is a scene of hope. So after many years of living like this, suddenly some very controversial men showed up in your town, traveling all the way from Israel. And they were proclaiming a message of grace and forgiveness through the power of the one and only true God. Their God was the triune God of the Hebrews. Their Savior was Jesus Christ. They said that their powerful God was bringing all people to himself and creating a new and united people for his glory from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. And that included yours. And they would come into your town and proclaim these things. They would proclaim a powerful universal kingdom that had come through their Savior, Jesus Christ, and that their God was now calling all men everywhere to repentance and calling them to faith unto salvation through the only name by which men could be saved, which is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to them, they came into the middle of your town, and according to them, they would say that the names of Apollo and Artemis and all these other gods, they had to go. They had to step aside because you're, uh, all people under heaven on earth need to repent and trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only did they preach this very well-rounded, amazing message, religious message and uh, incredible gospel and an exclusive message, which was controversial, but they also had this accompanied with tremendous miracles. So they'd come in and they'd preach and they'd heal people and you'd see the power of their God, whereas you'd serve for hundreds of years for Artemis and Apollo and all this stuff and you would not get to see the blind healed and the sick made well and all these amazing things taking place. So not only was their message this beautiful message, but it was also accompanied by miracles But most importantly of all, the thing that impacted you the most was that they preached a totally radical message about the free grace of God in the gospel. A totally radical message. You've never heard anything like it. They focused on the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, he goes to the Corinthians and he preached, I knew nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. So Corinthians is not in Asia Minor, but that does not take away from our point. They were preaching Christ and Him crucified. So the impact of the arrival of these men, these apostles, these true apostles preaching the gospel, was that this message brought you eternal and lasting joy because for the first time ever, you and your family could have access to a true and stable relationship with God. And it was all based on grace. It's all, just all based on grace. There was no more uncertainty about what kind of God you were worshiping or how He would treat you. In the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the chains of superstition and fear that had so long accompanied your worship and your idol service, they fell off of you. You were free. All of a sudden, you were made free. So you experienced what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John taught you, that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, that in Christ you are no longer a slave of sin, but a slave of righteousness. You got to experience that firsthand. For those preachers... Um, you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from those preachers, <coughs> excuse me, from the preachers, you heard the truth. And as they promised, the truth set you free there. The truth was what set you free, the true gospel. And in their gospel, you tasted of the bread of life. You drank of the living water, things like we talked about in our series on, about John, uh, the book of John that we just finished. So when this gospel arrived, 
you and some of your family members put your faith in Jesus and began to gather with other like-minded people in your community to worship the true God that none of you had ever served before. Now, needless to say, this was not well received by the people in your community. A lot of them didn't like this. The people in your community who continued to go to Artemis and Apollo and everyone else, they did not like this uh, fact that you had become a Christian. And so, um, this, you know, was, this was a massive change for you guys. But this was not... Um, Yeah, these churches just the churches began to grow. The house churches began to grow and there was opposition, but the gospel began to take a noticeable foothold in your in your city, in your town. Though maybe not massive, but still noticeable. And you didn't really mind that those people didn't want to support your business. The people who went to Artemis and Apollo, they didn't want to support you in your business and in your life as much. Because why? Because you were free now. So if you had less income, that would be fine. And the thing was, now that you had less people supporting your business. Yeah, maybe you had some hard times, but all of a sudden you were part of a Christian community where you experienced the deepest form of love you've ever had. And so whenever you ended up finding yourself in a time of need, you all had people all around you who could support you and could lift you up and could give you uh, support financially, spiritually, emotionally, whatever kind of support you needed in the Holy Spirit. You had never felt such love and never been so filled with joy in your life. The grace of God had changed you. The Spirit of the living God had anointed you. The movement of Christianity, which some people referred to as the way, was growing and you were filled with joy and excitement about the eternal life that you had found in your Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the scene of hope. This is the scene of the hope of the gospel having come to your life. And that first seeds of the doctrine of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ came to you and you immediately had a change in your life, change in your circumstances, change in your joy level, Assurance, everything. And all of that great growth and transformation was happening until the wolves showed up. Until the wolves showed up on the scene. So this is the next scene of the story. Deception. The scene of deception. So a little while after your conversion, when the church looked like it was just beginning to become stable and strong, some false teachers, evil, flattering, self-seeking heretics showed up and they began to teach deceptive doctrines in the churches of Asia Minor. Some of them came from outside and would travel into the town, and they would find churches there, and they would come in and they would speak, or they would find somewhere where people would listen and they would have a chance to speak. But oddly enough, some of the people who were these false teachers, some of the people who were wolves in the church, were people who had actually snuck in from within the church. People who you initially thought that you could trust, people who you initially had prayed with, people who you initially had worshipped with, People who had even been persecuted with you. Some of the same people who had suffered loss and discouragement and struggles with when they first became Christian or claimed the name of Christ were now coming in with all kinds of weird ideas and weird deceptive teaching. And These false teachers taught various forms of a general heresy known as Gnosticism. So I'm sure in the next series you guys are going to hear a lot about this word Gnosticism. Okay, so it was something which manifested itself in many shapes and forms but its adherents generally presented the belief that they had special hidden knowledge. Something that God had only revealed to them through their own personal spiritual disciplines or their own personal spiritual experiences or visions or dreams or whatever it may be. The things that they taught would either be twisted scriptures. So they'd either take something that seemed right and true in scripture and twist it somehow. 
Or sometimes they would come in and they would teach things that were totally like out of left field because they said, well, I had this vision or I had this dream or I had this special knowledge. And so they would come in with these different teachings that were totally unique and did not line up with everything that you had already been learning from Scripture and the things that you had already read and studied at the church. So what they preached was a deceptive concoction. It was a mixture of Jewish fables. It was a mixture of pagan religious and philosophical ideas as well as some genuine biblical truths all mixed in with it. So it was this huge mixed-up concoction. These Gnostic heretics taught that there was a sharp contrast between the physical aspects and the spiritual aspects in religion. And so they would regularly undermine the very important doctrines that had set you free from idol worship, that had set you free from fear, that had set you free from superstition, that had set you free from misery. They would regularly undermine these. So originally... You had undoubtedly believed the message of the true apostles, for instance, John and Paul, which was that because he was fully God and fully man and took on flesh, Jesus was able to sacrifice himself on the cross for your behalf and take on your sin and give you his righteousness. Right? The, the gospel, plain and simple. Instead of a transactional relationship, like I said, John always taught you that this relationship was based on the idea of grace upon grace. John's gospel says it's grace upon grace. And that it was all made possible because God really did become a man. So he emphasized that fact. God did become a man. So naturally, this was the best news ever to you. But when these Gnostics, when these false teachers came, they really shook up your faith. Because in the apostles' absence, they kept on proclaiming eloquently and with great and swelling words and with a lot of confidence that what you believed about Jesus was ridiculous. They would say to this young Christian, your faith is ridiculous, impossible, and unspiritual. That's what they would come in and they would say. They would teach that God could never take on human flesh and become a man. Because everything that is of the human body and of the earth that is of material was, in their opinion, evil. Okay? So they would say, there's no, way that, there's no way Jesus could become a man. Therefore, they would suggest that Jesus only appeared to be a man, right? Huge difference between actually becoming a man and only appearing to be a man. And they would not teach the apostolic doctrine that Jesus Christ really is fully God and fully man. They would with much confidence suggest that Jesus did not come in the flesh. They would deny things in turn like the virgin birth. So what they would say is that when Jesus came to the earth, he actually lived a normal human life for a while, but then he took on his, like I guess I could say, godness at his baptism. So at his baptism, he takes on his godness. So they would deny or undermine the superstition, or <coughs> excuse me, the substitutionary atonement. The clear biblical doctrine of the giving of Jesus' righteousness to us in exchange for our sinfulness on the cross. Right? That's why they would undermine that, because if they didn't think that there was a virgin birth and they didn't think that Jesus could ever become a fully uh, fully God and fully man, then they were fundamentally undermining the very basis of your assurance, the very basis of your Christian hope. And so these heretics, in a very sneaky way, would, would teach a completely different gospel to the one that you had originally been taught in the days when you had that gospel hope coming in, and, the one that, and that gospel that had set you free, that gospel that had set you free from tyranny um, of idolatry and superstition and fear. So these false teachers, another, to, to give you a little bit more of an idea of what these false teachers were teaching, these false teachers that Paul sarcastically calls super-apostles, he, he sarcastically says that of them because he knows they're, nothing, they're not even real apostles. They're barely, they might not even be Christians. Most of them are not. Um, 
They taught one of a couple of things as their way to please God and receive the kind of enlightenment and progress that they boasted. So on one hand, there was one, there's two groups of these, these false teachers. One group, they, they would actually teach a similar type of doctrine. It, it would always have similar types of themes and ideas. But it's interesting how false doctrine leads you sometimes in totally different directions, even though the main error is sort of the same. So some of them would come into town, and they would come and they would teach you um, a very strict, legalistic, and ascetic form of religion. They would say that you could not eat and drink things that you previously thought that God had said you were allowed to enjoy. Or they would say you could not get married, even though the apostles clearly told you you were allowed to get married. They would say that you needed to deny yourself of all pleasures of the physical kind in life and live a very miserable and disconnected life from the rest of the world and from the rest of the people in your town. So that's one side. But this is a very confusing time for you because at the same time, other men who taught some very similar types of doctrines associated with Gnosticism would practice and allow some of the most wicked and disgusting acts of morality to take place in your religious community there. So though they taught somewhat similar things to the previous group that was super legalistic and ascetic and tried to keep themselves away from all these physical things, this group would instead would, would go the opposite direction and they would say you can live and you can act however you want. They'd say you can live and act however you want. They would say that because there is such a strong distinction between the spiritual, the higher things in life, and those lower things in life, in your body, in your, in your physical self, that therefore you can do whatever you want with your physical body. You can do whatever you want with it as long as um, you still had those spiritual experiences and those so-called moments with God somewhere mixed in, right? So they would basically say, yeah, you can act however you want, live however you want. You could sleep with whoever you want. You could participate in drunkenness and debauchery however much you want. And you can carry on in very wicked ways as long as you still have these experiences, these sort of spiritual things going on. Because there's this strong split. So both those errors making the same mistake, right? This strong split between those things that are, that are of the world, like our, our flesh and our bodies and the things that we do with our bodies and the so-called spiritual life. And we as Christians obviously don't believe that, that we believe that everything we do with our body is spiritual. Everything that we do with our spiritual affects our body and our life, right? There's always a strong connection. But they would split this up, and so they'd lead to two of these possible errors. Now, the saddest part of all of this is that something horrible began to happen in your spiritual walk when these, these teachers came along. Tragically, the more confusion that they created and the more you believed their lies, the more you began to slide back into the previous patterns of acting and thinking that you had previously been freed from. So the more you listened to them, the more you did some of the things, the more you fell into those patterns. Those same patterns of superstition and idolatry and immorality that previously plagued you in your pre-Christian life began to creep into your thoughts and your actions. These men and women had begun to deceive you and many others into believing that the God of the apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you, the one whose way of salvation and grace was so different from the idols that you used to worship, was really not that different at all. So They had somehow twisted in your mind and confused you to the point where it didn't feel like it was that much different at all. Like at the beginning, you had all this hope, all this joy, all this assurance, all this confidence in your faith. But the more you listened to them, the more you followed after their path, the more it began to feel, man, this doesn't seem that different at all. These lies began to have a very awful consequence on your church as well as on your own spiritual walk with God. One, one of the awful consequences 
was that there began to be a lot of dissension, a lot of fighting, a lot of division in the church. Well, you can imagine, right? With all this confusing doctrine, no solid, rock-solid uh, basis for your community, this is obviously going to create a lot of confusion in the church. Eventually, a large group of people actually split off from your previously united body and began their own group according to the Gnostic doctrines. They said that the people who remained behind were lost and disobedient to God. You thought, well, apparently that includes me. And so since you were still growing in your understanding, you're a pretty young believer at that point, you wondered if maybe they were right. Maybe you really weren't in God's favor after all. If, if what these people who left, they, they say they have the truth. I'm not sure what I have. They say they have the truth and they're saying that I'm not a true Christian. So then you start to wonder, maybe they're right. Maybe what they're saying is true. And then another effect of the confusion and the division and the satanic doctrine was that misery and doubt and lack of assurance and distress overtook your life and the lives of many other people you knew and loved. You all wondered what was true. You lacked certainty and were plagued with doubt. Your hearts condemned you. Your minds were confused. Your faith was shaken up. Were you really a child of God? You would ask yourself. Was there any hope for you? You'd ask yourself, did you really know anything at all? Right? Because these special Gnostics, Gnosticism is based on the word knowledge. They would say that God gave them special knowledge, some special, unique knowledge, some super special understanding of things. And, and you wondered, well, I'm not sure if I've ever received that. So maybe they're right. Maybe I don't know the true God. Maybe I'm not truly a Christian at all. So they would cause us inner personal problems, but also then external problems. Their teaching would destroy the church's unity, people breaking off and leaving, but also the inner spiritual life of the believers in that town were, were disturbed in that church. So all of this up till now was your spiritual journey. This was a terrible spiritual predicament. Started out lost, became hopeful, and then here you fell into deception, you fell into confusion, you fell into misery because of the teaching and the lies of these people. And so now we go into the final scene, which is the, story, which is the scene of restoration. Scene of restoration. By God's good providence and goodness to you and to the rest of your church, you were, in, you were very encouraged when in the midst of all this confusion and misery, one day someone stood up in the church and they read a letter from the Apostle John. John was someone you could trust. He was someone who had seen Jesus face to face. He was someone who had a solid grasp of the apostolic doctrine. He was actually an apostle, a true apostle. He was someone who you knew personally. On that day, somebody stood up and they read the letter of 1 John which is the letter that we are about to study for the coming weeks as a church. As this person stood up and read the letter, immediately the true authority and sensibility and spirituality and clarity with which John explained the life of faith and godliness began to set you at ease again. It's so clear. It's so much authority. So sensible. It's so right. And it's so spirit-filled. The truth of John's epistle restored you to your former assurance and over time it brought, you back, it brought back unity among the true believers regarding genuine truth and accurate doctrine. 
It felt like all of a sudden you were, you, were, you were stuck in a spin cycle. You were stuck in the waves getting tossed. And all of a sudden when you heard this doctrine and you, when you read this letter over and over again, it felt like you were brought back onto solid ground again. It felt like the fear-inducing man-centered lies of those Gnostic false teachers no longer had nearly as much sway on you. They couldn't impact you nearly as much after you had this letter to listen to. As you listen to this truth, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit testified to your spirit that you belong to the true God. And through the hearing of this letter, the Lord restored to you the joy of your salvation. It restored the unity in your church body. And so many wonderful fruit came out of this wonderful gospel-filled letter. So that's the end of the story. That's, that's me leading us up to the message of 1 John. That's the story of this person's life at this time going through these ups and downs, and it really gives you hopefully a picture for what 1 John is about, what 1 John kind of is reaching into, what kind of community it's written to. Of course, we know that it's just as applicable to us because the truth of God is timeless. So, yeah, this story of this person's life in Asia Minor in the early church gives you a helpful idea of what is taking place when John wrote this letter. It was into this context that the book of 1 John came, and so the book of 1 John, again, just to summarize now, is a general letter, which means it's not to one specific church. A lot of churches, a lot of letters say it's to Ephesus or to Corinthians or Corinth or, you know, to a specific city. But this is a general epistle. It's to several churches in Asia Minor. From the elderly, beloved, and respected apostle John to the several churches there. And it was written in response to the destructive heresies and false teachings that had crept into the church via the Gnostic false teachers. So as one can imagine, the impact of teachers undermining the core doctrines of the faith created fragmenting in the church, people leaving, people living according to the flesh, people rebelling against God and deserting the gathered believers to form their own gatherings. It was a very disturbing and destabilizing time. John writes into this environment where he wishes to encourage and bring assurance to a body of saints that has been embattled by false teaching and lies and have been caused to doubt whether this Christianity thing really was a true path for them, really was the right thing for them to follow. So they've been caused to doubt doctrine. They've been caused to doubt their former friends. They've been caused to doubt their basic beliefs. And sadly, this all has left them feeling, as you can imagine, miserable and joyless. It's left them desperate for guidance and comfort. So over the next coming weeks, we're going to have an amazing privilege of being able to see not only how applicable that was to them, but how applicable and relevant and timeless and powerful John's words of life and encouragement are today, just like they were to those people. And if you can, I mean, when I was reading that uh, account of that person in Asia Minor, I hope you can kind of relate to them in some ways, in some respects of your own spiritual journey or maybe your own spiritual experience uh, as you listen to different people and try to study and figure out where you stand in terms of faith and where, how to understand things. So we live in a world that, though the different uh, manifestations of doctrine and heresy and things like that may be different sometimes, um, the influences and the feelings and the bad consequences are often very similar as those heresies that uh, took place here in John's day and those, and those other factors that were affecting the believers there. So and in addition to that, we do have just straight up the same heresies a lot of the time. The same heresies, the same false doctrines, the same issues that cause problems for saints today. And in addition to that, we also have the same kind of division in the church a lot of times. The same kind of schism, the same kind of turmoil. 
So let's briefly consider, I just want to go briefly, quickly, and just consider some of the other ways of how relevant this epistle of John is to our modern lives. This is by no means a full list. It just gives you a good taste of the message of 1 John and how relevant it is to us. So the same sort of New Age Gnostic teaching runs in our world today very strongly in many forms. It's seen in many places. Um, but there's a good example, a very simple example would be in the area of like gender, right? Gnosticism in the area of gender. You might not think about gender. What do you mean? Well, think about how people think about gender today. They think about it this way. They say either they, they base their opinion about gender not on the physical, not on how your body actually is, right? Not on your genitalia, not on your chromosomes, not on what you actually physically are, but rather how they feel about it. So they're like the Gnostics. The Gnostic wasn't concerned with, with the, the grassroots basis of Christianity and the law and gospel and a true understanding of how God created things. No, he was concerned with how he spiritually felt about things being. That's not all that different from a transgender person who says, I'm, I'm, I was born as a girl or assigned girl at birth, but I, I believe that I'm a boy. And no one can argue with me and no one can say anything against it because I believe this, right? So whatever you spiritually think is disconnected from what you physically are. One example about a hundred other ones that we could pull out of our modern context where the same kind of thread comes in. Now, in addition to that, the same kind of antinomian, licentious, liberty type of mentality runs through our world as well today. Um, by that, I mean the idea that you can be and do whatever you want. Be, do, say, anything you want. And even worse, in our world, you can even say you're a Christian and be and do whatever you want. And in some churches, you can even be or act as a pastor or a minister and, and be and do whatever you want, right? That's such a common theme in our world today where the doctrine and the Scripture and, and the truth of God does not govern our action and our, and, our, and our way forward, but rather we can, you know, I take this, leave that, I can continue to act in this wicked way while I just get to do whatever I want. Just like those other Gnostic guys who said, well, I believe the right truth in my spiritual mind, but when I use my physical body, I can just be and do whatever I want. In addition to those two things, um, the same kind of lack, and I've already mentioned this, the same kind of lack in, of unity and division and confusion regarding doctrine and practice is pretty common in the church today. A lot of churches very confused and divided and split up on these types of things. Uh, the same sort of lack of... This is a very important one, very em emphasized by John in 1 John, is the same sort of lack of seriousness and acknowledgement regarding sin and the fact of original sin and the punishment that's deserved for sin and our guilt before God in the, is very common in the world today. So these, these Gnostic guys would oftentimes, they'd come in, right, and they would say, um, they would say they've reached some kind of spiritual plane where they don't ever sin, where they're actually perfect. They've reached perfection. And so these, these kind of uh, doctrines about original sin and the importance that we've all sinned is the theme throughout 1 John and recognizing that. And then in addition to that, the same kind of super knowers, super apostles and false teachers who think that they have special knowledge are prevalent today. So there's many, many similarities to today in the book of 1 John, uh, things that could deal with today that are touched on in the book of 1 John. And that's just to list a few and so one of the difficulties of understanding the opponents in 1 John is, like I mentioned, the diversity of, kind of, the diversity of fables and beliefs and things that they used to believe in 
all that kind of stuff. In other words, we can deduce from the historical data surrounding what Gnostics and people like that believe. There wasn't like one thing. It's not like it was one unified thing that they were. It was all this confusing and scattered ideas. And so the amazing thing about 1 John is that in, this typical, in his typical fashion, the Holy Spirit has given us a book in 1 John written in such a way that it correctly and swiftly combats all of those errors and all of those scattered lines of thinking and craziness with one shot. It's like a shotgun approach, if you will. So the general all-surpassing truth of this book effectively quashes so many strands of false doctrine. It just, it, it, it's an amazing book. It only takes like 15, 20 minutes to read, and it can, and it can quash so many things. You, you would be amazed at how many false doctrines and how many wrong perspectives are just completely destroyed by this one short book. Just to give you a quick example, perfectionism, legalism, and works righteousness is crushed in one verse, one verse eight. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. For example, those themes are touched on other places too, but I'll just give you one verse to kind of help you see what I mean. Prosperity teaching, prosperity gospel, the fact that you need to uh, serve God so He can give you riches and wealth and fame and things like that. 2 verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Simple, right? Simple phrase. I was talking uh, earlier today with one of our members mentioning how amazing it is, right, that that the, this book of 1 John with just one line can just hit so many possible themes. Uh, next one. False teaching regarding the atonement. 2 verse 2. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Combating Gnosticism. This is one element of Gnosticism, but throughout the book it's going to combat it. But for one verse, remember I said that the Gnostics would claim that they had special knowledge that they had this unique and special contact with God and this uh, higher and better form of knowledge than anyone else. 2 verse 10 says, You have been anointed with the Holy One and have all knowledge. Amazing, right? Crushes Gnosticism with one verse. All the heresies regarding the person of Christ also. And for example, 4 verse 3, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It just just hits a death blow to so many of the Christological heresies, heresies regarding the understanding of the person of Christ where they maybe don't fully acknowledge that Jesus Christ came fully man, fully God in the flesh. And this is just, again, to name a few of this shotgun, the shotgun pellets on this shotgun that can just blow away heresy in 1 John so beautifully. So we see that there are so many things corrected here in 1 John and, uh, it, and it's just an amazing and exciting time. Again, just a 15, 20-minute read. I would really encourage you, like, why not read it every week like, for like 10 weeks? You're going to be a heresy-crushing machine after that. Like, it's all, it takes very short time to read, and it's just so packed full of amazing stuff. So we've already learned about this in the story about the person from Asia Minor above. But to state it clearly, I want to read a selection of verses from 1 John for the sake of making the message and purpose of 1 John even clearer. So the beauty of 1 John, again, is that unlike basically the only exception to this that I know of is Hebrews, which we read that passage earlier today where it says, the main point of what I am saying is, and then he goes and gives a chapter on the whole main point of what he was saying. 1 John is a book kind of like that where it constantly is telling you exact where John is constantly telling you exactly what his main message and purpose are. 
which is amazing. He just lays it out crystal clear and plain. So keep in mind, that person in Asia Minor and your current self, while you read these purposes, right? It's such an encouragement for us to use and read and study and come to the sermons of this book being preached. 1 verse 4. 1 verse 4, it says, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. He's just telling you, write plain. The reason he's writing is so that your joy may be full. That Asia Minor guy who's miserable and concerned that he's fallen back into his old patterns of misery and idolatry is so incredibly encouraged to hear those words. John's writing him a book so that his joy can be full. 2 verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, he's combating all that those lies about false actions and, and not following the law of God. He's writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's, he's aiming at godliness with this book. His message is godliness and true obedience to God. Or 2 verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Clear. His purpose is he's trying to combat heresy. And I've emphasized that over and over again already today. And then 5 verse 13. I write these things to you. This is amazing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's given all these clear reasons. And he summarizes it in 5 verse 13 after he's given all of those things. He says, I write all these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may have assurance of salvation, that you may have confidence before God, that you may have confidence that you're going to go to eternal joy and have salvation. So John's message and purpose are clear. His message is to produce joy, godliness, assurance, and to destroy false teaching, which is the enemy of those three things. False teaching destroys joy. It destroys godliness. It destroys assurance, right? And he gives you... Um, a destruction of false teaching, and He gives you joy, godliness, and assurance by giving you the true teaching, by giving you the real thing. And so John's um, going to help us a lot here. Studying First John is going to be an incredible journey for us, I hope. Something where we get to actually experience the same experience that that man I described from Asia Minor, or yourself from Asia Minor, would hopefully have experienced when they had that time of restoration at the end if you've fallen into any of these hardships in life or these trials in your faith journey. So, uh, yeah, I'm very incredibly grateful for this book, and uh, I do pray that our joy in the gospel from studying this book will be fuller, that our unity will become stronger, that our obedience to God's Word will become more heartfelt and more consistent, and ultimately that our assurance of salvation will be deeper because of it, because we're going to dig into it deeply, and we're going to get to enjoy that together. So let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much for this wonderful piece of scripture that we're about to study together and unpack in detail. And God, I thank you that your spirit worked through John as your word came to us through a human vessel to give us guidance for life that's going to produce wonderful fruit if we give ourselves to its study and that's going to produce joy and godliness and assurance in us and 
that's going to help us to not constantly be swayed by every wave of wrong teaching and doctrine, but that's going to put us on solid rock, Lord, that your word is a solid rock. And thank you for giving us this word, Lord. Thank you for giving us your, your timeless word, God, that's always relevant, always going to help us and always going to be so impactful and, and it's going to minister to us. And I just pray that you bless this time, bless this journey as we go on it together, uh, studying this passage and this section of Scripture, Lord. And I just pray for your guidance and for your grace. And I pray that these things today would be a blessing and would be applied to our hearts as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.